0: We're going to be wrapping up the book, believe it or not. And so uh, just to recap a little bit, all this time we have been watching God rebuke Israel and Judah over and over and over again for basically for idolatry, various forms of it, not acknowledging God, not worshiping God, defiling the temple as a symbol of that Defiance and at the same time, worshiping other false gods, okay? God sends his prophets over and over and over again to tell them and to demonstrate to them that God is real, and he's all-powerful, and he's very, very interested in a relationship with them, and all these other gods that they have literally made up, like with their own hands, made idols and then worshiping, are not real. It's not that she's not, not as great as God. It's just that there's no competition whatsoever. There's only one God, and his name is Yahweh, and then there's all this stuff they made up. Okay? That's been the story. We've seen that over and over again. So we'll see this again this morning. We're finishing up Kings. Last week, we got to know Hezekiah. That was a, a, a brief, bright spot in First and Second Kings. He did very well. He eliminated almost all the idol worship in Judah. He tried to eliminate all of it. He just didn't live long enough. Even though some vestiges still remain, he worked hard to reform Judah, and Hezekiah died of an unspecified illness, leaving the kingdom to his son Manasseh at the age of 12. Now, how do you think that went? I mean, Hezekiah did great. Then his son, he was the worst of them all. He was... The most wicked of every king. In fact, Manasseh is the one who put God over, like, past his limit of patience. He was withholding judgment, and Manasseh just put him over the edge. Manasseh reigned 50 long years. Each one of them seemed more wicked than the last. I just have a list in the notes. By the way, if you want my notes, there's some in the back. Manasseh rebuilt the high places used for idol worship in Judah, all the ones that Hezekiah had torn down. Not only that, but he rebuilt the altars to Baal like Ahab had done. We we thought we were done with Baal worship. We are not. Manasseh brought it back. Not only that, but he built altars to Baal inside the temple. More convenient that way. Not only that, but he sacrificed his son to Molech. And Chronicles tells us actually there was many more than his own son. And not only that, but he used fortune-telling, omens, spirit mediums, and those who talked to the dead instead of the prophets. He would go to these occultists and ask them what he should do as a king. Of course, it was, they gave him terrible advice. Then following Manasseh, we have Josiah, who was another great king. It's kind of exciting. You think, maybe Josiah. 2 Chronicles 34.3 tells us that Josiah began reforming Judah in his eighth year as king. By his 18th year, he has an impulse to repair the temple instead of only removing idols in high places. It's pretty cool. That's in 2 Kings 22, three to 7 So he's not only tearing down idols the way Hezekiah did, he goes to the temple and he begins to rebuild it and replenish it and reinstate worship. Hilkiah, the high priest, discovered a copy of the book of the law in the temple. Think about how long... That temple had been neglected, to where he finds the book of the law. Like, like it's almost the way he reads is like he found it like in a closet somewhere on the floor, covered in other stuff. He discovers it, and he goes, "Hey, this is an interesting book. We should read this." They find that it's pretty interesting, and they bring it to the king. This was probably the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. Uh, probably what they read to. Josiah was the book of Deuteronomy because there's a lot of features of Deuteronomy that show up in the things that they do in response that we don't really know. So Shaphan, who's, a, who's basically the king's right-hand man, brings the book of the law to Josiah and says, hey, we found this, this wild book in the temple. I want to read it. So he reads it to Josiah, and this is Josiah's response to hearing the Bible their Bible read for the first time in probably two or three hundred years at this point. This is Second Kings twenty two eleven to thirteen. He says, "When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes." And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary, and Asaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that it is that it is written concerning us. This is amazing. They rediscover the word of God, they read it, and they go, "Oh, wait a minute, this is why everything's going wrong in this country is that we left, we are no longer doing what God told us to do. We're not worshiping him, We're, and he is mad. His anger is kindled. His wrath is kindled, means fired up against us. Then Josiah, God speaks to him through a prophetess named Huldah, but it's too little, too late. That's what she says. It's not good news. God speaks to her, and she says, look, um, Josiah, this is great. God says, this is great that you've, you're doing this. And because you're being a righteous king, God is going to withhold wrath on for you while you're still alive. But it is too late. Manasseh specifically is mentioned. He went too far. He pushed God's patience is done. He's not going to withhold wrath anymore. Y'all are going into exile, but it will be after your death. what I love about this is, despite this news, Josiah, he's like a man on fire at this point. He personally and painstakingly goes throughout the kingdom, removing every single remnant of idolatry. There's this long section. and He picks through every corner, every hilltop, every valley, every household, every gravesite everything and he picks through the whole place and removes everything destroys it down all the altars are turned to rubble and dust the high places are turned down torn down the asherah poles are burned the altars ground to dust including what manasseh and ahaz had placed inside the temple he digs up the bones of dead idolaters and burns their bones he's thorough then he executes the temple prostitutes, the false prophets, the priests of Baal, the mediums, the necromancers, and then burned their homes and desecrated their temples. He was thorough. And then he made sure the temple was fully restored and he reinstituted instituted the Passover before he died. But it's too late. It's too late. Josiah dies by foolishly putting himself between a fight between Egypt and Assyria. We don't really know why. It's probably because he was afraid it was going to end up coming eventually and turning into a problem with, for him. But Pharaoh Necho killed him. Probably means he sent soldiers to kill him. Or he probably didn't kill him with his own hand, but we don't know. Jehoaz took the throne after Josiah, and what do you think happened? I think we know at this point, even if you haven't read this far, it takes more than one or two good kings to turn the nation around, because so that's the problem. Is who they need is Jesus. He's the only truly righteous king. Jehoaz lasted three months before Egypt captured him and put Eli- Eliakim, king of Judah. Uh, King over Judah in his place, or he would stay for the next 11 years. I think this is really interesting. At this point, the nation is so broken that other nations are putting in their preferred king in Judah. Egypt comes and says, Nah, we're going to kidnap you, throw you in our prison, and then we're going to put our guy in place. It's sort of like the the CIA of the ancient world. We're just going to, we got our own guy that will work with us and give us your stuff. And so we'll make him. The king. He's already compromised from the beginning. Pharaoh, even to make the point, Pharaoh even changed the king's name when he put him in, just to make sure everybody understood that he belongs to Pharaoh. So during this time, Babylon defeated Egypt and then marched into Philistia and took it. And during this time, Babylon took some captives from Judah, including Daniel and his friends. So if you want to put this in a timeline, if you're Bible knowledge. This is where Daniel and his buddies come in into the story. So Babylon basically is growing in power. They've not been a huge problem until this moment. They begin to win wars and grow in strength and then they there's no one around Judah to conquer anymore and their eyes turn to them and they go in and they conquer all of their cities and they take some captives. God sends armies the Chaldeans, the Syrians, the Moabites, and the Ammonites against Judah in rapid succession and so weakened them that Babylon at this point can just walk in and do whatever they want. Then in 2 Kings 25, 8-17, the temple is destroyed. And I want to read this. I want to read it because the way it's written, if you've been here since we did 1 Kings, and you remember way, way back, like 20-some weeks ago, when the temple was built, we got all these details. You remember that? The gold and the brass and the bronze and, and the ornate sculptures and the ornate wooden carvings and all this stuff and the detail that went in, that description, about, and all of it symbolic of things about who God is and our relationship with him and our story as the people of God. Like, all this beautiful, like you're imagining it, right, this description is meant to bring all of that to mind. That all of that is being destroyed. So let's read this together. 2 Kings 25, 8-17. to Here's what it says. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem... And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen, basically slaves. Verse 13, And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans also, and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver, as silver. Probably meaning they melted it down and took it away. As for the two pillars, the one sea, the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, hundreds of years ago, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight, the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates. All of bronze were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. So picture this. It's pagan city, Babylon. They come and they take all these things, and they bring it to their capital city, and they use it in their architecture. Scattered all over. What are we to make of this? I have one last application I want to make from the book of Kings, which is this, very simply, so goes the temple, so goes the nation. Whenever the author of Kings wants to demonstrate the spiritual condition of Israel or Judah, he points to their relationship with the temple. What? How do you treat the temple? That's how he tells us every time, over and over again. He says, look, when... To show you how idolatrous these people are, let me show you what they do to the temple. And to show you how righteous this king is, let me show you how he rebuilds it and replenishes the temple. So I see this in two categories. One is, are they honoring or desecrating the temple? That's the first question you see asked over and over again. And the second is, are they building the treasures of the temple or emptying them? That's what you see over and over again. Now, if the temple in the Old Testament is the church in the New Testament, and I don't have time to prove that to you in the New Testament, but just take my word for it. All right? We are the church, not just Living Hope Church, this local body of believers, but the church is the temple. Then we should be asking these questions of ourselves Am I honoring or desecrating the temple? the church am i building the treasuries of the church or emptying them so let's look at question one for just a second do you see the body of christ as the sacred house of god not the brick and mortar of a building but the body of christ the people that make up the church do you recognize her as a sacred place a holy place The person to your right and left, if they're a follower of Jesus, is where the God of Elijah has tabernacled his presence. That means that they are sacred. And your relationship with them is a holy thing. It is the place where God resides. It is the house of God. Like, your relationship with them is where he lives. And he lives in you and he lives in them. It's a holy thing. You cannot access God in the same way alone as you can with them. That's crazy. Jesus said, "Where two or more are gathered in My name, there I am among them." Now it doesn't mean He's not anywhere else, but that's just the way the temple worked, didn't it? That building didn't contain God; He wasn't only there. But there was something special about when you went to the temple. If you were brave enough to go into the holy of holies, there was something special there that wasn't other places. And that's a mystery. I can't delineate that very easily for you, but it's the same way with us. When you worship God and pray and are in His presence by yourself, it is not as good as when you are with other Christians. And it never will be. It is God designed it that way. So if you want, and I'm not saying you can't access God by yourself. I'm saying you can't access Him in the same way by yourself. That's profound to me. The person to your right and left are ordinary vessels of clay, but they are made sacred by what has been put in them. You might say, well, my neighbor gets on my nerves. I mean, don't look at them right now with that look of disgust, but they might get on your nerves. You might be mad at them right now. It's probably if you're mad at somebody they're on the other side of the room. But it's not anything about us that makes us sacred. It's what has been put in us. So do not forsake gathering together. Do not dishonor the temple with division, jealousy, anger, malice, contempt, impatience, unforgiveness, or gossip. This is why Paul over and over and over again says that stuff. because He's going, look, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I know because I read First and Second Kings. I know that so how we treat the temple tells us about our relationship with God Himself. you cannot say I'm, I don't like the church. I don't like Christians, but I like God. Because God says, if you want Me the way you really want Me, you got to go to the church, warts and all. I know there's problems, and you can take a break because you got hurt. All that's fine, but you're following God is going to lead you to the church every time. Some form of it, some representation of it, somewhere, someplace, you're going to find yourself encountering the church when you chase after God. Are you honoring or desecrating the temple? All right, number two, am I building the treasuries of the temple or emptying them? So how do we apply this to ourselves? Are you using your gifts and resources to build, strengthen, restore, and support the church? I think the restore one's interesting. Because what we like to do is when we are unhappy with this would never happen here, but at other churches. When you're unhappy with what's happening is you put yourself outside of it and you say, what I like to say is, not my circus, not my monkey's. Y'all go and have your little weird time and make a mess, and I'll sit outside of it and complain about it. But that's not how this works, because you're in it. If you're a Christian, you're in the church. Every criticism you level against her is leveled against yourself, and you are, so, so if there's a problem, you are, should be part of restoring the temple. How many times in First and Second Kings did we see the temple neglected for generations on end? And somebody would come in and say, I'm going to go in that building, and I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to put the treasuries back in. I'm going to put the, I'm going to rebuild it, I'm going to clean it, I'm going to get the altars to bail out of it, I'm going to destroy that, and I'm going to rebuild it, restore it, refresh it, repaint it, whatever needs to happen. Or, the alternative would be giving your best to Babylon and leaving the scraps for the temple. Every Christian is a priest. This is the other thing about the temple in the New Testament. Uh, The church is a temple, and we are priests. We are not people that go to the temple to receive atonement like they did in the Old Testament. Everybody gets to be a priest. You have all been ordained as priests in the temple of God. Every last one of you. From the moment you become a Christian... To the day you die, you are the one in the temple working in it to make it do its thing. You are not attending it. You are a priest in it. You are not a visitor to the temple looking to get your sins atoned for and then go back home. You are a kingdom of priests. The church is your life's work. It's something I've been thinking about recently. Partly, probably because I'm going on sabbatical, but it forces these questions on you. Which is, when we came here 16 years ago, um, is it 16? Yeah, uh, yeah Heather says yes. <laughs> we decided we're we're going to be at Living Hope Church for life till I'm going to die here. Hopefully, not here. That would be traumatic for, for quite a few people. And maybe then you'd have a new church hurt story and you'd leave the church and, you know, we don't want that. But you, you get my drift. For life, it's a lifelong commitment to these people, not this place. I don't, still don't feel deeply called to Kernersville, the town. Isn't that weird? I mean, I love Kernersville. Don't, don't put me on the Internet saying pastor dislikes Kernersville. That's not what I'm saying it's the church. It's you people for life. And my question is, am I the only one? Do I get a special Bible because I'm a pastor? Because when I read the New Testament, I don't see any positive examples of people not doing that. I see 12 disciples radically dedicated for life to the church. And what I want to put to you this morning is wherever, whatever church you're in, whatever local expression of the church you give yourself to, give yourself to it for life. And if, and if God moves you somewhere else, give yourself to that place for life. This is... What would happen if we stopped prioritizing our careers, prioritizing, pardon me, Babylon over the church, over the temple. It is nothing for most of us culturally to pack up, sell our house, and move across the country to make more money at another company. It's not, we don't even question it. Well, obviously I should go to that place because they're offering me a great job. The benefits are great. It's only a 10-minute commute to work. And, well, look at the money I can make what a blessing I can be. Now, if you've got to do that to feed your family, that's a different question. I'm talking about our culture tells us that the thing that should drive us and organize our life is making money and having a great career. And I'm saying that is not the New Testament. The New Testament says the thing that we give ourselves to with that kind of dedication is the body of Christ. I don't live according to a different Bible. You're a kingdom of priests, and the church is your life's work. Now, don't get weird. I'm not saying you've got to be in this church, and y'all need to, I mean, y'all are dedicated, all right? This is not a rebuke to you from me. It might be from the Holy Spirit to you personally. I'm not going there. I just think when I read First and Second Kings, when I realize that the temple becomes the symbol, how we relate to the temple becomes a symbol of how we relate to God. And it brings up some questions. So this, I think, is what God is showing us, showing me and us as I go on sabbatical in 30 minutes. (laughs) Is that uh, the pastor and elders of this church do not get a special Bible that has certain demands of them and requires a certain commitment from them that he does not require of every single other one of us that belongs to this church. It is the same commitment, the same toil. That's the way Paul put it, toil. That's not a positive word in our world. Toil, yes, we all work with the same level of commitment. And I would suggest that's a commitment for life. And when you start to think that way, it changes your perspective, doesn't it? Well, now I've got to restore. i got to fix some of the problems because I'm going to be here for life. It's like your relationships. If you're stuck together for life, and I would say forever, you might as well go ahead and forgive each other and hug it out because you're going to be neighbors in heaven Forever. Every day for a billion years, you're gonna walk out your front door of your teeny tiny mansion, and you're gonna look across holding your cup of coffee, delicious, amazing, full strength coffee, and you're gonna look over and you're gonna see that person you complained to God about for 20 years, <laughs> and they're gonna wave. And you're going to think, Pastor Ben told me a, long, a billion and 30 years ago that I might as well go ahead and forgive them and hug it out because we're together forever. It's the same way with your church. When you commit for life, it changes the way you relate to it. I think this is one of the themes of First and 2 Kings that we need to get. And I haven't really talked about it. Let's save it to the last day, all right? So, why don't we pray? And then I think Jamie's coming up to tell you some details for you non-readers of emails. So I'm going to pray for us. God, I ask you, God, thank you first for preserving these, this book, 1st and 2nd Kings, for us to, to read these amazing histories and to learn from the hard lessons that your people have learned and given to us so that we can learn but without making the same mistakes. God, I pray that this morning we would look at our own life and ask those same questions of ourselves. God, make us people who restore, who rebuild, who invest, God, that we would see ourselves as priests in your temple and that our relationships with one another and relationships between local churches, it's holy and it's sacred. God, that we would not give our best to Babylon and give the scraps to the temple, but we would take all of our gifts, all of our energy, all of our resources and put them into each other. God, for those that don't know what their gifts are or feel like they have nothing, God, I pray that you would show them even now that that's a lie. That you have given everyone something to give to their community. Something. And something important and necessary and needed. God, give them face for that this morning. God, I pray for anyone who has stood outside the church because they've been hurt or feel rejected or feel frustrated, God, that you would, as they chase after you, that you would bring them to a place of healing and help them to find a community where they fit. God, where they can do this stuff, where they can give their gifts in this way. God, I pray your blessing over Living Hope Church this summer. God, that they would prosper without us. (laughs) God, I want to be a stranger when I walk back in here. God, that you would add and you would strengthen and you would mature us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, that's my dad. It's not Father's Day, but he's still my dad. Um, <laughs> He thought I should pray for the mothers um, in response to Christina's word about the the yoke of Christ being easy. You know, when we hear that, we tend to think, well, it doesn't feel easy. Um, It's because it's a yoke. It's not about the weight of the yoke. That story, if you didn't grow up in a farming world where they had oxen with yokes, you wouldn't understand that. It's not the way of the yoke, it's who you're yoked to. You're yoked to someone much stronger than you, and that's Jesus. The yoke that he is in and he has put you in is easy, not because life is easy, but because the ox you're strapped to is like a billion, infinitely stronger than you. And so when Christina says, seek Christ, that's what that means, is rely on him. So I would like to pray for you. Um, How about we just have all the moms stand up? because that's who she directed it to. Now, you can steal this. If you're not a mom, or you're a dude, you can steal this for yourself, all right? But this is Mother's Day, so suck it up for a few minutes, all right? So let's, I want to pray for you. Just receive from God. Lord, thank you that You were way stronger and more capable than us. I know most moms feel guilty about their failures. We even have a name for it, mom guilt, because it's so common. We see our mistakes. Our weaknesses, the moments when we did something we shouldn't have, or said it in a way we shouldn't have, or neglected to do something that we wish we had done better, and or oh, we're afraid we're gonna do that in the next minute. Lord, I pray right now that by your spirit, that you would link them in with Jesus. And that they would be able to release their children. The burden of their children, the godly burden of the spiritual life, the future of their kids, all of that that weighs on every mom here, that they would be able to hand it over to you and let you carry it as they are moms, as they continue to become, to be mothers. God, that that weight would be on the neck of Jesus and not on them. That they will be be able to trust you, that they'd be able to minister peace to their children because they are at peace. That they'll be able to offload the guilt of their mistakes onto Jesus. That they'll be able to offload the burden and the worry of how are my kids going to turn out. That they'll be able to hand that over to Jesus right now. God, I pray that you give them the faith to see that you are not only carrying their burdens but you are carrying the burdens of their children. And you will carry them into their future. And you were there in their future for them. And that you are a good father, and you're going to be a good father to their kids, not just to them. So God, I pray that every concern, every worry, would be lifted right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen.